Greetings, dear listeners. Our guest this week was Elbridge Colby, the author of the new book, The Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict. It's a very rigorous, realist case for a muscular approach to China, and as you can imagine, it led to some interesting back and forth, especially with Shadi. We've split this conversation in two, with the bonus members-only episode focusing more on the United States and whether domestic politics and populism on both the right and the left undermines America abroad. We hope you'll subscribe to give it a listen. It's really good stuff this week. Apart from bonus episodes of the podcast, Shadi and I take turns writing essays every Friday that are also for paying members only. We'd encourage you to have a look at what we've already published and consider supporting our work. As always, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Bridge, I, you are currently uh, with the Marathon Initiative, or is it, what's the, uh, the term for the, it's the Marathon Initiative? The, the Initiative, and, and yeah, no, great to be here, guys. Thanks for, thanks yeah. for having me. I just, you know, get, give background to people. You were sure. in the Trump administration uh, in, at, at the Pentagon, and the Marathon Initiative, uh, you are with uh, West, West Mitchell, basically, is what right. you so, guys started. Yeah, basically, I've been working in and around national security, increasingly kind of defense issues for the last, I don't know, basically 20 years. I was in the Pentagon 2017, 2018. You know, the basic thing I was doing was the national defense strategy of 2018. And then a bit after I left, Wes Mitchell and I, who are, you know, great friends and, and have kind of like-minded or are like-minded, we, we, you know, we decided to set up a, a small, it is a think tank, but a think tank more, we, we like to think in this sort of original sense, which is a place, you know, really to, to write books and think deeply about strategic issues, strategies, particularly and, you know, give us the time, space, and platform to do it. So, yeah, initiative. initiative. 501c3. 501c3. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, um, you, uh, I mean, I, it's it's true that basically you and Nadia Shadlow and the Trump administration, I feel like, were the two big drivers about talking about great power competition as like the the shifting paradigm in how, how to, to basically, is that is that a fair, I mean, you, you at Pentagon, not, uh, Nadia at the NSC, and I mean, obviously, uh, McMaster was was very important in doing that as well. But I, well, I, right. I wouldn't like, want to exaggerate yeah. my importance, but I, I, I certainly bang the drum and naughty as well. West to, yeah, General McMaster, you know, Secretary Mattis and others, obviously. But uh, but yeah, I mean, Nadia and I worked really closely together when she was doing the national security strategy and I was doing the national defense strategy, obviously with colleagues. Nobody does these things by themselves. Right. Right. Um, I mean, uh, so you have a new book out um, mm -hmm. and uh, tell us a little bit about the argument behind the book and then Shadi and I will, will jump in to sort of debate the, the the sort of the meat and potatoes of it but you know to give our, our listeners sort of the the sense of where you're coming from tell us about the the outline of the argument in the book sure I mean the basic argument of the book I think can be boiled down to the the problem is that you know in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union the United States was so powerful certainly along with its allies that it could basically solve all plausible serious defense and security problems through just kind of the overabundance of its resources. So it could, you know, if it, I don't know whether it was actually a global hegemon by the technical definition, but, you know, it could fight two wars at the same time and, you know, chew gum at the same time. And that's just clearly not the case anymore. There is a uh, superabundance of potential threats and challenges relative to the resources we have available. And so in that context, you know, you need to make a choice about, you know, how do you do that? And I saw that very clearly in the Pentagon, actually. This book is really imprinted by my Pentagon experience in terms of the value of a strategic framework and the kinds of choices that practically need to be made. And so my argument in that is, all right, well, we're 
you know, we're in this position where we need to make choices. In that context, I actually think a strategy is really important. I mean, a lot of people throw cold, pour cold water on strategy and say, oh, nobody ever does strategy or whatever. But no, I mean, it is possible to do it. And it's important, right, to have a rational basis for making optimal decisions in this kind of scarcity in the economic context, economic sort of uh, lingo. And so in that in that sense, you know, it's basically a deductive approach. It's like, all right, where, how do we how do we allocate our resources and level of uh, you know effort? And I say, well, what's our basic interest here? Our basic, I have a sort of a, I would say, enlightened but a self interested view of Americans. You know, our duty as as strategists or foreign policy experts and obviously government officials is the long term best interest of the American people in the broad sense, um, and particularly their their security, their prosperity, and their freedom. And obviously, those things are interlinked. Okay. So if that's the case, what's the primary threat to that? Well, I think the the one significant thing that could really change that would be a really dominant unitary actor, basically a state that had so much power that it could coerce us over our own interests. And I think we're seeing that actually China beginning to sh- exhibit features of what it might look like in the future. And I'm happy to talk more about that. But that's the primary basis. Okay, what's the what what out there in the international system could plausibly represent that? Well, there's only one state that matches ours in power and that could plausibly agglomerate other states' power underneath it to project that kind of coercive power against us. And that's China and Asia. I mean, Asia is basically 50% of global GDP. I mean, yes, that's an imperfect metric, but it's good enough for government work. And China is roughly 20, 25% of you know, global GDP along with us. So Europe's second at 25%, but Russia's a lot smaller. Not saying Russia isn't a threat, but it's a lot less of a threat. Okay, so our basic goal has got to be to deny China that kind of level of dominance over Asia. And I think they are pretty manifestly pursuing it at a minimum. Okay, so if we want to do that, how? Well, I think we basically have to assemble an anti-hegemonic coalition, I call it. It's a bit clunky, but I couldn't come up with a better term. Okay, sounds good. That's actually basically happening right now with things like Quad and AUKUS and this sort of thing. That's good. But the problem is, you know, China is now, now, I think, moving towards the best way, or I'm sure thinking about the best way to either think of like short-circuiting or, you know, collapsing that coalition. And this is an important point. I think that China's best strategy, and I think we need to think about their best strategy because, you know, they're likely to be optimizing over time, is I call it the focused and sequential strategy. It's, you know, it's old hat. It's like what Bismarck did, right? You don't take on this wholly assembled, you know, resolute coalition. You try to pick it apart and then basically cause a run on the market. Basically, people say, all right, this coalition isn't worth its salt. So in that context, the U.S. role is critical because we provide the steel in the spine. And I'm not somebody who's like, you know, I used to roll my eyes when politicians would say we live in the most dangerous time. America looks farther than anybody. That's all a bunch of hooey. But in this context, it actually is true, right? Like it's just, you know, it's basic sort of collective action stuff, right? Okay, if that's the case, good so far. The problem is, um, the the good thing is that China, I don't think, is going to be able to get its way to regional hegemony by economic coercion alone and like political suasion and sort of gray zone ninja stuff because countries don't want to give up their autonomy. You know, in in Asia, nationalism is not a bad word. It's a good word. Um, So countries are going to stand up and you can see Australia standing up. You can see India, Taiwan even, et cetera. So, okay, that's good news. But the bad news is that that's going to increase the allure of the military option for China to pursue that focus and sequential strategy. 
Okay, and the problem is they will have a really good option because they've been building a military not only to do this vaunted anti-access area denial thing, which is basically to defend themselves and make it hard to get near them, but they're building a power projection military. They very manifestly are, which is essentially a military like ours where we get to decide, oh, we don't like what Iraq's doing. We're going to invade them and force them to do what we want. And that's the kind of... So we have to have a military capability to deny China that, and that's the, the, the two-level reference in the title, Strategy of Denial. One is to denying China regional hegemony. The second part is a military strategy of denial to defend our allies, in particular in Taiwan, I consider a kind of a quasi-ally, sufficient to keep them on side in a way that correlates the costs and the risk of that fight to what the American people are, are prepared to suffer. And that's really hard because, you know, that's not just saying, well, we're going we're, we're to fight Taiwan by destroying their base in Djibouti. It means defeating their invasion in a kind of focused way. So that's the basic idea. And then I go through that. And I think in order to do that, we're going to basically have to stop probably doing almost everything else, including in NATO, largely. I think we should stay in NATO, but really minimize our conventional forces there, certainly in the Middle East. And then basically focus on China and Asia, our nuclear deterrent, and a low-cost counterterrorism operation. And that's sort of, if we can get that, uh, that'll be great. I mean, I actually think what the Biden administration seems to be saying is, what they assume the competition will be is actually what I think success will be, which is like, we want to make sure this is a political, economic, ideological, et cetera, competition, not a military competition, but they are, I worry they are presuming the very thing that we need to strive towards and we're behind the curve right now. So I, I, I mean, I think that the book, and it's important to point this out, it's a book about military strategy fundamentally. And a lot of the stuff sort of gets left on the, on the, by the wayside as a result there. Right. I mean, um, and I, I think some of those things that, that get left by the wayside, I think we should probably talk about, but it's it's fundamentally, it's a book about military strategy, and the, the key premise is that a defensive military strategy is what's required in the region, right? Like, that's that's important. Right, it's basically status quo, which is which is really good uh, from a from a kind of uh, a, a geopolitical point of view. Yeah. Um, the, and, yeah, go ahead, well, Shadi. So for, for people who aren't as maybe technically focused on defense strategy, I think here's my attempt to maybe sum up some of your argument for like the lay person. You can tell me what you think about it. And I should also say that, um, I mean, you're, I, I really liked reading your book. Um, I think it's going to be one of those books, I think it really is in some ways, that really defines a really important conversation that people are you know, paying more and more attention to. Um, and it's one of those books that I feel like if you're in the foreign policy space, you probably have to read it and contend with with your arguments. Um, I do disagree with quite a bit of it, and we'll get to some of those disagreements, and hopefully that'll be fun, uh, not just for you, Bridge, but also for our listeners. But um, before that, I think, um, you know, I think if, if I had to sum it up, the big takeaway is China's the number one concern we have to shift resources from all the other things that have been distracting us for the last 20, 30 years and put it to this fundamental struggle, really, str conflict struggle, which is with China as a rising power and as a contender um, to the U.S., which is, you know, a fairly recent phenomenon. And what that means in practice, as far as I can tell from, from reading your book, is um, that other regions don't matter as much, other priorities that that, well, they're not actually priorities. Things that we thought were priorities in the past should no longer be seen as priorities because if they don't help us 
confront China more effectively, then they have to be put as second or third order priorities. So as a Middle East person, you can imagine <laughs> that I'm not thrilled by this, by the, the implication. Check out the European reaction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I think you do say quite explicitly that the Middle East isn't that important. And I think you rank the Middle East as maybe number four in your list of priorities. Um, and then Latin America doesn't even get put on your list. It's That gets like... Uh, uh, that doesn't even doesn't even really figure into things, which um, which I kind of you know I think I kind <laughs> of agrees I'm on kind that of one. Okay <laughs> with that, I suppose. But um, and we'll we'll. Get... I'm not sure the Latin Latin Americans want America to that be interesting. True, that, you know, that, I mean, that, that is a good point. <laughs> um, so so if I'm an ordinary American reading your book or hearing one of your talks, um, is that is that a fair summation that we have to just be laser focused, and this will be the defining struggle of our time. Well, yeah. I mean, first, thanks for your, your comments. They're very generous and kind. And actually, that's exactly the spirit that I hope people will, will receive the book in, which is that it's a, a framework that's deductive and I hope clear and transparent. And you can see the logical workings out and you can decide where you disagree and you'll see what that means. And then you can kind of play with it. And so play with it. I mean, you, you know, kind of uh, fiddle with it, if you will. And you but you it, it'll situate a debate. I mean, this is one of the things I really found in the Pentagon is that, you know, what I hate is people who say the world's very complex. And, you know, it's just like, no duh, right? Like the world is complex. Help us make optimal decisions in a condition of complexity in scarcity, right? Okay, so if you disagree, then you can, hopefully you can use this framework maybe to make different decisions. Maybe I'm wrong on a number of things. I actually don't think I'm the expert on a whole number of these things, but hopefully the framework is, is survives. So that's good. And I think the way you put it is, is, is very fair. I mean, I think that's exactly basically right. And I'm not, I don't shy away from it. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, um, the the maybe the 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 blind spots or maybe the things that are left uh, by the wayside are um, some of the things that I think uh, are assumed away. I mean, what what I what I really enjoyed about the book is because I, I find myself at least sort of ideologically with similar commitments to a kind of like a realist approach. And I like how you just said this is basically you know strip away a lot of this stuff, give a paradigm to sort of think about this stuff, and then and then approach it. And yet, you know, I mean, the the part that 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 um, as a primarily as a Europeanist, the part that really jumped out at me was uh, in towards the end of the book. You make an argument about what kind of how how we start squaring this away as we prioritize China. And there's a section in there about Europe, which I think, from a realist theoretical standpoint, is actually correct. They need to step up, and I would like to think to a certain extent that. Uh, you know, as their feet get held to the fire, they will step up. And I think that's a big part of the assumption that, that you have in there. I'm not sure where Wes ends up on this, but... <laughs> I don't speak for Wes. I don't speak for Wes. He <laughs> but, speaks for himself. <laughs> but but the, the interesting thing there is, as someone who's working on Europe all the time, is I see the opposite happening to a certain extent. You, you single out Germany a lot there. Um, and I, I think it's it's one of the things that, that I'd ask you to sort of think about, uh, maybe work with us th uh, through right now uh, on this, is, is basically... Um, a lot of the assumptions about how the you know anti-hegemonic alliance in China is to be stood up um, seems to me to be falling apart in Europe. As you know, even you know, even under Trump, we started moving away, um, and yet here we are, uh, still moving away. I, th I think even more credibly moving away under Biden, and you still see this incredible reluctance among the Europeans, among the Germans. You see almost a, a, a larger inclination to accommodate Russia. So you know just. Walk through that part of it for me about um, 
you know, I, I, I think as a framework, as a framework for justifying a certain kind of defensive posture in Asia, it's very compelling. However, the, the, the motivations of certain actors and like to build this alliance, I, that caught me up short comparing what I know well, which is Europe, and then Asia, which I don't know that well. Well, I actually think you, you both raise an important issue, and I'm not going to skirt it at all, but I think you, it's something that I think needs further thought by, by hopefully many. But I mean, I think the point is that um, actually there's going to, I mean, as you may recall from the book, the anti-hegemonic coalition, it's only peripherally includes European states. I mean, I think that what happens in Europe and the Middle East is secondary or tertiary, let alone Latin America or Africa. Um, but it is significant, uh, particularly in, in, in Europe and the Gulf. Um, so, so the question there is, you know, I'm looking at this very much, as you said, from a military defense point of view. My view is that, as I think I heard in the book, is that this is military strategy and military affairs are not just another domain. If they are neglected, they are determinative because, like Chairman Mao, I think power ultimately comes out of the barrel of a gun. So if lethal force can be brought to bear, I mean, it's Hobbes or whoever, these Thucydides, that will, that will be the most efficacious form of coercion. But if you can, if you can essentially make that irrelevant, then hopefully military affairs become marginal. And then we get into the world that we want, which is the political economic uh, competition. So, so I'm, I'm striving for that. And, I'm, and I want to make 100% sure that we are in a decent place there, not necessarily that we have 100% confidence there, but that we are really squared away in the primary theater, because I think all of those other problems will become worse if we fail in the primary theater. So I'm, I mean, to Shadi's point, it is a priority, you know, like, I mean, pr the term priorities gets abused because like, sh there shouldn't be like five priorities. There should be like one, maybe two, you know, but so like there is, this is like what, what you should be doing. That all said, and I think, you know, Wes makes this point very eloquently is you have to get the secondary and tertiary theaters right for, for the obvious point, which is the, the dismount issue, say from Afghanistan, but also because these areas, I think, will actually have more leeway. I think there's a kind of, a, like, I use the analogy of, of China being like Jupiter. There's like a gravitational force in Asia. It's almost like geometric how states are going to array themselves. Like, Japan and India, they don't have a choice. They're the secondary states in the region. They need to align with us. This is, I think, this mistake the Russians have about the future of geopolitics. But Europe and the Middle East are farther away and they're less and, and China has much more of an incentive to play nice. So I actually think the bottom line here is this is where diplomacy is going to be really, really important. And I actually don't know what the answer is. I mean, I think one of these burden sharing issues and this in, in encouraging collective action in this context, I don't pretend to have an answer for it. I think that candor with like the Germans and also asking them uh, things that are more clearly connected to their self-interest is that so I mean I think at least at, at the presidential level I don't know how people are thinking about it through the administration but President Biden talks about like an alliance of democracies it's a very ideological approach I don't think that's going to work I don't think it is working I think a better I think a more practical approach is to ask the Europeans to say you know generate economic scale with us you know take care of their own neighborhood that kind of thing but I to, to your point, I think it's an unanswered question so far that we have to get right. Well, so just to, to clarify yeah. what I'm getting at, though, you know, it's it's um, it's it's the fact of Europeans not taking up their own burden, basically, in Europe after we've provided, after we've created, you know, you make the point that NATO is actually a successful example of what, um, you know, the kind of alliance and the kind of balancing defensive alliance looks like to prevent, to take war off the table. Great success in Europe. Cold War, no war. 
um, apart from peripheral sort of things, but the, the balance was held. Uh, the, the, the interesting thing is that, that you know, um, uh, basically gets to my other question of, you know, how is that different and how is that the same? And I worry in the absence of the ideological struggle of communism uh, that you see basically Germany willing to deal with the Russians, whereas a lot of our people say no. And that makes me just wonder whether China's, you know, is not going to take the place of the Soviet Union and generate the kind of easy bandwagoning. Because um, while, yes, the Vietnamese are incredibly um, uh, independent-minded, Koreans are very different from that. Uh, Japanese themselves are have a different set of calculuses and how they're going to approach these things. Now, I get it. You know, this is hard work, and this is the role of diplomacy to try and sort of arrange all of this. But I wonder whether that that's something that is uh, different and maybe slips through the cracks of, I think, like a, a serious realist analysis of this, which is that, you know, uh, the motivations for a lot of these countries are somewhat different and they don't necessarily, it's not just power balancing a lot of this stuff. So I don't know, how do you, how do you address that kind of stuff? Are, are, is that a concern for you on, you know, creating the kind of alliances in Asia against this? Well, I do think that it's largely about power and threat, um, particularly power, which I think threat is downstream of power. But, but as the, the, as the power attenuates, that's, then you get, you know, countries like Germany and France having feeling they have a lot more leeway. So I, I mean, I'm not against ideology being part of our, you know, set of, you know, tools. I mean, that sounds cynical, and maybe it is a little bit, but I'm not against that. I think that's an important part of how we operate. Then again, I'm not sure that the Europeans are into ideological war. I mean, they're, they're the ones saying that they're not into another Cold War. I mean, that's Macron and, and, and Merkel. They've been, I mean, and I guess Merkel's going to be replaced by like a clone of some kind, right? So it's like, I I just don't think it actually, you know, and, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to go on like a, a crusade against any part of ideology in that in, in in the role here but i think it's going to be more effective if it's arrayed around some kind of concrete self-interest like the fact that for instance if we're worried about a hegemonic china the europeans should be terrified because they're going to be disunified they're going to be weak their governments aren't going to be very effective and the chinese are going to eat them for lunch yep. i mean if we're worried they should be terrified and yet <laughs> and yet, yeah. Okay, yeah. so let, let's dive into the question of values and ideology a little bit more. And I'll just note that even as I was disagreeing with parts of the book, I found, I think actually um, in the New Yorker write-up uh, of the book, I think that um, the writer put it this way, that your prose is clinical and ominous. <laughs> I have to say, I did kind of like that. Yeah, I was yeah. Like, yeah. It sounds like a one of those like hospital dramas, you know, like... Do, 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 you know? But I was like, but, that was what I was going for. <laughs> but it did strike me that there is a kind of ruthlessness to the way that you write. And I mean that in a positive sense. Oh, that I take you, it that way. No, yeah, you kind of um, strip away everything else. You get to your point. There's not a lot of tangents. It's a very focused book. And that's, I think, what makes it frightening. So whatever else people want to think about your book, at the very least, it, it, it does and it should make people more worried about China. And then people can discuss what to do about that. And I think um, that's, part, that's part of your objective. Now, when I think about like why I'm worried about China, ideology and values looms large to me. So I was somewhat surprised that... Um, there wasn't there wasn't even a cynical discussion of like using values for your ultimate interest so you don't seem to have much room uh but we can we can talk about like where where you sort of see that but from my perspective just to kind of lay out my cards and listeners will know 
that um, Demir and I have a long-running uh, fight. I mean, he is more the realist. I am someone who is still ideologically motivated, and that drives a lot of what I say and write. Demir and I haven't been able to resolve this, and um, <laughs> but maybe we can. Let's let's see here. So I think I do sympathize with Biden's framing of the Chinese threat. So when he says that this will be the defining struggle of the coming era, because in part at least, China is an authoritarian regime, and we are a democracy, and that's one of the reasons that we are worried about China. Without some recourse to that ideological framing, I have trouble getting worked up about China. So I think primarily about the genocide against the Uyghurs. I think about the fact that this is not just a normal authoritarian regime, and there are many of them, and we have to work with some of them. This is actually a totalitarian regime that wants total control over its citizens. It doesn't have any tolerance for even the most mild dissent. So that to me, that to me suggests that, um, and also when we're thinking about why, why would Japan or South Korea prefer America being the hegemon over China? I think one of the reasons they feel more comfortable with us, relatively speaking, is that they know that we are a country that um, isn't totalitarian in our motivations, that we do care about freedom and democracy to some extent. And maybe that's not the most important thing for them, but they are they are both democratic countries. And I think that even if that's not first and foremost, it is implicit in why we are the better alternative than China if they have to choose between us. When we think about... Um, we can get into domestic politics a little bit more, but when I, when I think about how we inspire Americans to get worked up about China, if that is in fact the goal to kind of get them to a higher state of readiness, one thing that we tell we would tell Americans, and I would tell my fellow Americans in a very sincere way because I believe it's real, is that there is something fundamentally at stake here, and that's we believe in a certain set of values as Americans. And we do want, we do prefer those values to kind of have some expression in the international arena. That doesn't mean every country has to be a democracy, but if if we had a choice between whether China would be democratic or totalitarian, we'd probably prefer it to be democratic. Now, you have a very interesting, you do discuss this, and I'll, I'll just, it's a very interesting quote, and I'll maybe just use that to push you, is... So you say, quote unquote, China's achievement of hegemony would pose a serious challenge to U.S. interests under any circumstances, that it would do so while governed by the Chinese Communist Party exacerbates a threat. So you acknowledge that it is worse, that is it, that the Chinese Communist Party is in charge of China, but you seem to be suggesting that China would be a problem for us, even if it was democratic, even if they had a democratically elected government with minimal, with basic freedom, so on and so forth. So maybe just play that out for me so we can, so I know exactly how you come at this and then maybe we can take it from there. Sure. No, thanks. I mean, I think you put your finger on, I mean, I, well, let me start by saying this. I, 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 and I appreciate, I took everything you said as a compliment, whether, <laughs> whether, you know, I, I know you meant it as such, but, but I really do because I, I'm trying to be as parsimonious as possible, not not in the, in the for scholarly sake, but for the sake of what is in Americans' interests. So I, I always tried to remain tightly rooted to the point here, which is what's in 
the enlightened self-interest of the American people. And, and you know, I guess we're all defined by ex- my, our experiences, but I, I'm really scarred maybe by the experience of like the Bush administration and, and what I saw at the time and still do as a just fundamental disconnect between what we were seeking to do in the world, at least rhetorically. I mean, I wasn't privy to the inside high-level decision-making, but it seemed like it. And, um, you know, what we could actually do and what was actually in the American people's interest. And I think that this, in a lot of ways, the sorry state that we've arrived at in the international arena is in large part due to that. And I mean, you know, a lot of it happened under under Clinton to some extent, although in, in some ways there was more uh, small R restraint uh, for sort of maybe indirect reasons. We could get into it if you want. But I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm I'm very marked by that. And, I, and, 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 you know, by the experience of Iraq, uh, you know, not I mean, I spent a little time there, but not just the whole decision and what it meant and. And and our approach to China in that time, I mean, really, you know, a thoroughgoing conversion to a very, I think, a real form of, you know, high-minded liberalism, you know, and I mean, I mean, that in the international relations context, that you would change the nature of societies, and that would make the world more pacific, and I think that's what we're pursuing. I never had a cynical interpretation of George W. Bush. I thought he was, like, pursuing it, you know, and I think Clinton did as well, and, and I think as Bush, Bush the father, to some degree, uh, it started out then. Um and I think that's led us to a really sorry place, a really, th- this situation. I mean, if you look at the Bush administration, there was Iraq, there was the financial crisis, and there was the neglect of the, of the rise of China. And that is, that, that is essentially a very, very, I think, the, a primary reason why we, are where, why we are where we are today. And many of the advocates for that point of view who are responsible for it are still very vocal and prominent. And I think to myself, what are we doing, you know? Are we, is this, you know, and so what I wanted to do with this book is just, as you said, strip it down and, and just give you the base, most kind of ruthless, intellectually ruthless framework for evaluating it, particularly because I think the nature of what I'm talking about is so terrifying that, you know, and I, I'm also shadowed by Vietnam uh, because um, for a variety of reasons, I've always been interested in Vietnam, but a lot of the, the mindset that I have is, if I can say, is very similar to, I think, the people who basically got us into Vietnam, who were confident about limited war, about escalation, they thought about alliances and credibility, and they got us into this disastrous conflict. But isn't there a middle ground, though? Because I I think that if we're talking about the Bush administration, um, we should be able to say that the Iraq war was one of the great blunders of the modern era, um, that the Afghanistan war, the 20 years war, was as well. I mean, I tend, and Demir knows this, I tend to kind of bracket those off and separate them from democracy promotion as a non-military. Um, so for, I think, for example, Egypt or Saudi Arabia, um, I'm not, I don't think we should try to invade them. They're going to be allies. We have to work with them on certain shared interests. But I do think that we should find ways to use our economic and military leverage to pressure them to open up their societies, for example. So, but that's just to say that, is there a way that we can... As you said, we're we're chastened by what happened under the Bush administration and the legacy of that. But to not go to the to the other end of it and say that values and ideas should not matter at all, that there there has to be some middle path where we can uh, because I mean, and I'd be curious what you think on this. I mean, is to what extent is China? something America should be frightened about because of their regime type, because they are a totalitarian regime. How much of that, 
maybe just some more clarity on where does that really figure into your analysis? Well, I think, no, to, and I didn't mean to avoid your question. I think it was, it was sort of long-winded, but I, to get to it, I think everything that essentially in the kind of moderate way in which you approach it is very compatible with my argument, right? In the sense that what I'm saying is this is the bare bones. And I think there is a compelling argument. And actually, this is what I'm thinking for my next project is like really digging into the, what is this self-interested case? And I think that has to do with Americans' prosperity and freedom from the coercive leverage of China. And that's, I do think, is, is, is not wholly but substantially independent of, of China's regime type. We don't want any country to be hegemonic. We didn't want the British Empire to be, I mean, that was a mixed, obviously, it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't democratic for the people who were living in the colonies and the imperial possessions. But I mean, just, you know, and frankly, we have problems with the European Union. I mean, that we don't feel they treat us fairly in a lot of ways. And, and, and that's, a, that's obviously a democracy. So, so I don't want to take the point too much, but I think my thinking here is I'm talking about war and peace in a grand scale where lots and lots of people could die. Um, what is it that we fundamentally need and how do we look and how do we arrange that if we also want to pursue, you know, values and, and the spread of democracy as a, as a core goal? That's like on top of that. I am personally small C conservative about that. But I do think, to your point, that there is a very, and this would be an argument I think that would be compatible within the book, is is it more effective to have countries on our side that are leaning towards democratic, and certainly that treat their people with dignity, even if they don't have, you know, if they're, it's better to be Lee Kuan Yew than, um, you know, the Pol Pot, obviously, right? So so that's, that, that's and actually, you know, I mean, in terms, Americans, I think, are not, you know, I mean, look what happened in Korea, in the 80s and the Philippines in the 80s, right, where we have a pull effect. I think that's, and in fact, one of the interesting things I've found is that some of my, you know, many of them are good friends who are, you know, if they, they probably wouldn't like, to, you know, neoconservative types who are big Iraq war fans or whatever. But actually our arguments have, have narrowed because I do think the ideology piece vis-a-vis -vis China is relevant. I, I think it's worse that they're, I, I mean, I hate communism personally. You know, and I, I really dislike the way they treat religious people in China, for instance, obviously minorities. Um, and I worry a lot about that. But I'm thinking again, like, what is it really in Americans' interest that they should be willing to literally die for? And for that, I have a very parsimonious approach. So let me let me let me just jump in on, on that sort of thing, because the the hearing Shadi talk about it and, and your responses maybe also gets my finger on what I think approaching at this again i i don't want to undermine the book's argument because i think it's important to stress for readers it's a book about defense and it's a realist framework for thinking about that and i think it's, it's very coherent and important for thinking about how to structure one's defense on this that said um you mentioned communism uh you mentioned and this is something i actually disagree with the biden people and sometimes i think you and i haven't actually shoddy worked out exactly um the difference but i think that Authoritarian and totalitarian is not the proper equivalent to communism in the Cold War. I think that's part of what I think bugs me about this. Because, you know, I, I'm reading your book. There's so much, I think, uh, the way you approach it, you, you're comparing GDPs of regions. It's Kennanite. Like, Kennan was all about this and saying we have to de deny the Soviet Union access to the sources of industrial might, basically, was why, why Europe was so central in the Cold War. You underestimated military. He did. That's true. That's true. And he was against NATO and all the rest of that. I mean, famously, I guess, though, what's striking to me about it is, you know, going back and looking at it is the Soviet Union. And I think Kennan did get this part really right. 
because he was actually a culturalist so much. I mean, he he knew Europe really well. He understood those countries, and he had a really good sense of what the Russians were, what's going on in their head, and what they were doing. Um, he had them right as being deeply ideological and very insecure. And looking at China today, I see basically. I mean, they're ideological, but underlying that is this like cultural supremacy sort of thing, which is, you know, which leads to this drive to hegemony, regional hegemony, certainly, and even global. They, they think they're, they really are the master race in so many ways is how they see themselves. We're all a bunch of potential tributaries to them. Um, and the other flip side of it is that confidence, right? They're not insecure the way the Russians were, that the way the Soviets were. The Soviets constantly felt this like gnawing need for uh uh, to, you know, I guess, basically dominate and expand in order to, to guarantee their security. So I'm wondering, you know, I, I was wondering when I'm reading it, and also just hearing you guys talk about this ideology, whether how much that is important in how we think about Chinese behavior. And then let me let me just, again, sharpen that, that point for you to, to what also I, I got to thinking about afterwards is Taiwan is key in your book. Uh, you talk about Taiwan and and the Philippines as you know. I think that the key theaters that likely we're supposed we should be basing this strategy of denial from as a you know, Clausewitz Schwerpunkt I guess in the sort of you know it's the real sort of pivotal point in in the in the coming struggle right. Um, it's striking to me I, this this winter I you know I, I, Chadi and I talked about it in the previous episodes. I did like this deep dive about Mao, uh, about sorry, about Nixon and Kissinger going to China and that whole moment. Um, striking that what emerges, you know, you read Nixon's uh, Kissinger's own sort of comments about it, uh, but and then you read some of the, the the memcons and other stuff that came out of the meetings. Mao and and Zhu all the time are just bringing up Taiwan. They're obsessed with it. Now, of course, Kissinger and, and Nixon have their own agenda. They're going in this with this idea. They need to peel the Chinese off from the, uh, from the Russians and create like the new balance in the Cold War. I get it. And I even get it why Kissinger then in the memoirs is really minimizing this that, that constantly is appearing. So I wonder, you know, uh, when you boil everything down to this power question, this question of hegemony, whether there's some nuance to be had there when one thinks about China as having its own priorities, perhaps being irrationally obsessed with Taiwan in some sort of way. Uh, interesting that you brought up Vietnam and the, the worries about, you know, again, this alliance structure, and you, you are committing us, at least in your ideal, to a pretty pretty strong position in a lot of this stuff. I don't know, talk a little bit about that, um, whether there are any things you worry about in the framework that you set up in your book. Are there any blind spots there about that? Are we, are we misunderstanding to some extent what China's out to do? Again, taking your points that, you know, we're already seeing a lot of the behavior about hegemony, the bullying of Australia, all that true. I don't know. I run well, wherever no, there's you a want lot there. That. I mean, I think on the culturalist point, um, I mean, in a way, your take on China and I think the ideology thing, it's almost like I'm trying to get the, the, the tightest defense of, of this position. And I think, you know, if the Communist Party makes China more aggressive, well, that just makes you all the more reason to sign on to what I'm saying, right? And if if a cultural interpretation such as you were laying out makes you think China's kind of hegemonic sort of by, by nature, if you will, ditto. Now, I I, I made it, I try to make a virtue out of out of my ignorance. You know, I mean, I have familiarity with China and so forth, but like I'm not an expert. But I mean, I think you could have a number of different views about China's behavior. And I tried to pick my fights analytically and intellectually that this will basically say this solves a particular 
I think, very important problem, but a partial problem that ideally we would like to make irrelevant, right? Um, and, and, you know, they're very strenuous debates about, about you know, uh, forbidden zhongnonai-ology, I guess you would say, you know? So I don't know. I mean, I will say just briefly, I mean, I think that the Chinese maybe exhibit more Russian-type characteristics than, than you suggested in the sense that they are very insecure in a lot of ways. I think they're very insecure— I mean, the, you know, uh, what I often hear about internal discord. I mean, if you look back at the century of humiliation, yes, it was foreign intervention, but it was the Taiping Rebellion and the Civil War and the Boxer Rebellion and, and all this kind of thing. I mean, it is, a, it is a rowdy country, you know, by nature. And so, and that can have external um, manifestations. I mean, I think one of the things about China that's actually similar to the United States in some ways is that it's such a continental-sized country with such a large number of people and such a sort of like overflowing culture that it's... I think it has a tendency to be a bit solipsistic or narcissistic. I mean, that it thinks mostly about itself, like we do. And um, that's sort of the vibe that they give off in Asia, I think, you know. And so, I mean, I think, you know, Xi Jinping is one, and the committee, standing committee now is one type of leadership. They might move back to a more Deng Xiaoping, but I think the structural factors will still obtain. And so I want us to be prepared for... Uh, for 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 that. In terms of Taiwan, do I have any blind spots? I hope not. Am I wrong? Possibly. Uh, and and I think of Taiwan as a 70-30, you know, and that's why I'm so obsessed with getting the right military strategy. And that's what the one of the lessons I take from Vietnam is that we had a, the wrong place and we fought with the wrong military strategy. And military strategy in the broader sense, I mean, the political military strategy. And I really want to avoid that. And, and one of the ways I do that, actually, is I want to defend islands. I mean, it's getting to your point, Shadi, I think, is like, I just think, honestly, when you really get down to brass tacks, we're better at high technology, naval and aerospace warfare. I think land warfare, and I mean, I'm not the world's expert by any stretch, but like, it's still, you know, at the end of the day, when the artillery's you know, gone and the tanks are gone, it's, it's, it's in the mud. And it's bayonets and and close co combat, and yes, there are a lot of people in the Marine Corps and the Navy SEALs. But these large totalitarian societies are going to be better at it, whether people want it or not. And they've evolved, frankly, over thousands of years to be good at that. And people will do what they're told. I mean, I was reading somewhere recently the Soviets shot like fifteen thousand guys in Stalingrad who left who. who quote unquote deserted who knows what they did right we had a huge issue when eisenhower hanged one guy for desertion and I, I like living in that society but we should try and this is where i really tried to be sensitive to the political military interaction it's pretty simple don't get in the land war in asia but if we don't want to get in the land war in asia that means we not need to have the islands as our friends and the, friends i hate that term allies and partners whatever but that's like what i'm trying to do but i you know i do think the chinese are really obsessed about taiwan that's why i want the extra increments of military assurance that they won't roll the dice because the good thing we have going for us is if they try and fail it's going to be really bad for them on multiple levels um by the way i i think if nixon were still alive he would probably be sympathetic to my argument i think kissinger's so bought in uh i think it's a mistake i think he should reassess this is his chance i actually i have like this little theory that he's not going to age well because like, what did we get out of the out of the opening to China? It was the right move, but like we gave them Taiwan. What did they give up? Nothing. They needed us. They thought the Soviets were gonna nuke Beijing. They were desperate. We didn't get out of Vietnam. The Middle East is probably the exception. We did okay in the Middle East. And then detente didn't really work. Yeah. So it's like this is his chance 
to say I was, you know, yes, I was right about China in the 70s, but now strategic circumstances change. And apparently Nixon indicated this before he died, that he was getting worried about the Chinese. I I think that's, I mean, uh, let you jump in a second, but I just want to jump on that on on Nixon and Kissinger. I I think it's really striking how Kissinger is not updating his priors on this at all. And to me, that... that Just some background for listeners. What is Kissinger's position on China now? What would he say? On China, it's on Taiwan, what I'm thinking of mostly, is that that, that, um, I, I think, you know, not just Kissinger, but all of his acolytes, everyone that, you know, is in the Kissinger orbit right now that was in those meetings really was staffing him back then. They're all part of the they they see um, uh, they, they've been making the argument up until recently. I'm not, I haven't seen it all that recently in the last year, but in the sense that 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 was an unqualified success that uh, China was slowly being brought into the fold. And all this talk, like stuff that, that Bridges' book puts out there, is uh, deeply provocative and is rolling back the great successes we've had with China. So, I mean, to a large extent, they're still holding to this, that the policy was an, an unqualified success. They, they like to point to the fact that how trade had been increasing, how there's uh, flights in between the mainland and Taiwan, and normalization was happening until a bunch of hawks got all, like, you know, worried about it. People like you, Shadi, about human rights and all this nonsense. Like, basically, uh, you're, you're ruining a good thing that, that's been going great. Now, I mean, I think, I think it's right. It's, it's, not, it's not really a compelling argument anymore uh, to that extent. Um, what, 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 uh, what, what is striking, though, is, is, uh, is that, that, you know, I mean, just what you made me outline right now is that, that uh, there's no real desire to do that. And, you know, I, like the, 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 the nasty sort of comment on that is that, that all those people have like really uh, very deeply founded, you know, consulting contracts and like doing business in China. So this is bad for business in a lot of ways, this kind of policy. But it is striking. I, I just want to sort of jump in that, that, that there's no desire. So I, have, you, have you heard from any Kissingerians about your book about or, or this kind of stuff? Have you know. gotten oh, any it's feedback? Interesting. I mean, I, you know, I, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a, many of the people who are around him. I, I'd be interested in what Kissinger thinks after I've challenged him. Uh, challenged. I, I asked him a question in like a book event years ago, and I said, but well, don't you think we need, need to uh, have a strong defense? Party? He said, yes, yes. So he tries to have it both ways. And I don't know what he's, I mean, the thing about Kissinger that I, at the end of the day that I find, and we were talking about it, Shadi beforehand, is like, I think he's a brilliant writer and thinker, but he's not a very like rigorous stru- structural thinker. And I mean, his basic idea was always that there would be a, basically a G2, that he was going to sit down with Brezhnev or Mao or now Xi Jinping, and they were going to kind of solve things. And that's like not, the thing is that he's thought of as a realist, but realists believe in balance of power, right? Like you don't trust the other guy. Why are you going to cut a deal with like Brezhnev? He's never going to honor it because they think they're getting stronger, which is what happened. Yeah. I mean, even more striking about, I mean, again, uh, we've talked about it here on the podcast. What's striking to me in Kissinger's own recollections is how taken by Mao he is. Exactly. He he that, yeah. he loves it. He's yeah, like it's and a then little much. It is a bit, much. A bit and, much. And and it's and it's it's Nixon in particular is is even playing it. Like the well, two of them are like beating up on on young Hank over there and he's loving it. He's just Well Nixon I think had I mean the original idea of opening to China was as I understand it Nixon's, Nixon's idea I mean, that's right. He laid right. out in his foreign affairs article of yep. 1967 and yep. I think the funny story to that point, I don't know if it's true or not, but, you know, the famous line about, oh, the Chinese are thinking centuries long terms because Zhou Enlai said that, you know, in response to Henry Kissinger's question of what do you think of the French Revolution? And and Zhou said, well, it's too soon to tell. And it turned out he was talking about the 1968 riots. Yeah, yeah. You know, right. so it's like this kind yes, of Tang right. Dynasty stuff. And it's like, well, you know, yeah, OK, maybe. But they're, you know, they're not that different from like, you know, they're dealing with reality, too. Yeah. Um, Demir. Yeah, go ahead, so, 
what you said was interesting, and I don't I don't know if you were sort of reflecting the culturalist argument in a way that is, I think maybe you were trying to convey it in a in a persuasive way, but I don't know if you actually believe that culture and ideas matter as much as you just suggested. But I think that supports, I mean, that would support, I think, my contention that at the end of the day, culture and ideas matter a whole lot. And you can't ultimately do, you can do defense strategy without them. But this, I think, raises a question. If the sources of the Chinese desire for hegemony in Asia are partly cultural and ideological or historical or historical, then presumably that would affect how we respond to China because the sources of why a country does what it does should affect how we as Americans see the threat or maybe not. Maybe the argument would be the sources don't actually matter. We observe Chinese behavior and we don't look too much into why they do what they do. I, I, I mean, I would be sympathetic to that. I think that's where you're generally coming from in your book, right? Well, I think it's basically structural and power. And then these historical and, and ideological factors kind of operate on the the basic axis. You know, like, I mean, and I think, you know, I think back and I, this, I, I tried to use history in the book in a way that wasn't, you know, trite, but like put some meat on the bones to give people some context. But like, Okay, like we fought with Joseph Stalin against Hitler. Okay, yeah, but then like you know the French had an alli- basically an alliance with the, with with uh, the Ottomans, you know, against the Habsburgs, right? I mean, the eldest daughter of the Church and the and the Sultan, you know. I mean, it wasn't formal necessarily, but I think politics makes strange bedfellows, and I look for this sort of Occam's razor explanation, and I think you tend to get it. You know, the structure tends. I mean, look at India, right? Like, I mean, you know. Americans just sort of reflexively say that we have shared values with whoever we're fond of at any given moment. But like, I don't think we, I mean, I don't, you kind of, or Japan. I mean, I grew up in Japan. I love Japan. You know, like Japan a lot. Oh, you grew up in Japan. Yeah. I I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, but I'm not like, I don't claim any special expertise, but it's like Japan and the United States are very different countries, you know, very, very, and their democracy operates socially. If you kind of peel back the onion, it's a very different social model. There's a lot of hierarchies. It's much more communitarian. Okay, great. Whatever. I don't, you know, that's Chacon Sangu or whatever. That's, that's, that's all my French. But, um, but you know, the point being that like, you know, Japan, we were worried about 20, 30 years ago. And by the way, we fought like the worst war, one of the worst wars in human history, 75 years ago. It's like those people's grandparents, parents, you know? So, but you know, we got a shared problem. And I think actually you raised something along these lines. Yes. I think you're right about South Korea and Japan looking at us as a democracy. I think that is true. Again, I think it's, but I think the basic reason is that we're far away, which is that, you know, you know, ambition tends to attenuate over distance, you know, because for a variety of reasons, military and otherwise, and China's very close and they feel it. I mean, if you talk to like the Koreans, you know, they've been invaded by the Chinese just like hundreds of times or dozens of times. And it's like, I, I think they would, I mean, you know, I, I think the ideological argument is actually more pointed for Americans because it's a more distant threat. And you might be right. I actually think you might be right politically in the sense that, like, you might agree with everything in my book and say, Bridge, you're naive. The American people are or you're you're too, you know, academic or that's not the right word, but you're too something. You got to appeal to the theoretical the theoretical. Yeah, one Tom way to put Payne, it. the yeah. rights of man stuff. Or dispassionate. dispassionate. Clinical. Yeah, clinical. Or, exactly. But I think actually in in in, in Japan and Korea, they and, and Vietnam and India, they would be worried about a democratic China 
possibly even more because it wouldn't have all the self-defeating aspects of the current government. But it would, I think it would still be very domineering. I mean, I, you know, Evan Osnos' book was called like the age of ambition. I mean, this is a country that clearly wants to extend its influence. And I mean, I guess then the argument comes, well, our democratic norms and the way they're instantiated internationally such that you, you kind of get out of that zero sum world. And I think the answer is on important things is probably not. Yeah, so just to, one thing that just came up in hearing what you were saying right now, um, and this is not something that I, I b- believe in, but I can imagine someone who's more on the progressive anti-imperialist side saying this uh, in good faith, which is, well, we as America is hegemonic over its own region, North America, Central America, South America, and um, no one really questions that or challenges it. It's just seen as like we are the most powerful country in the world and in our own neighborhood, we're going to exercise that dominance in one way or the other. Why shouldn't China as an, an upcoming future superpower and perhaps even a superpower in some ways now, um, why shouldn't they be hegemonic in their own region? Why do we have the right as Americans to block the natural course of power. What would you say to that? Well, you're, it's a great question. I actually thought about this issue quite a bit and tried to think about, and I tried to put an answer together in the book. I mean, I think you're importing a sort of a juridical or moral framework, which is like, well, isn't it fair, you know, that it's similar to the Russians or the Iranians or whatever. And it's like, well, first of all, it's not about fairness, it's about what's in our Americans' interests. And of course, to make that work, it's gotta be sufficiently enlightened that it will appeal, appeal to others. Um, I mean, I think a couple things I would say. First of all, America is hegemonic in its area because we are the overwhelming power. We are like, I don't know, probably 90% of like the GDP of North and Central America, right? So most of that's our own work, right? Um, you know, if if the Mexicans or others wanted to work with China to try to balance us, like they did with the Germans in 1916, I wouldn't necessarily fault them morally, I would fault them prudentially. You know, that's like my basic argument. I think they're, and I mean the Canadians too, like, you know, I got to talk about this in the book, like the Canadians did not want the Americans to be hegemonic in our, in North America, but like, yeah, it's, I mean, to your point, you know, it could have been worse. Um, but I think the basic reason also is that actually other countries do have an interest in our being hegemonic in our, in our neighborhood. Like we couldn't perform this role in Asia if we were consumed with competition in our own neighborhood. Actually, this is uh, an important argument that uh, Hamilton makes, I think, in Federalist 11. It's kind of related. I think it's Federalist 11. Anyway, but, but like, we wouldn't be able to be this balancer uh, of, uh, you know, this cornerstone balancer in Asia and Europe if we were consumed with our own hemisphere. So, you know, cui bono, right? Like, our hegemonic position, as they say about Mexico, you know, too close to the United States, too far from God. But, like, it's good for Japan. It's good for Vietnam now, not so good for them before. Well, the North, North Vietnamese. Um, it's good for India. So I think, you know, there's no, you can't make everybody happy. But I think, you know, I mean, what I would say to a progressive also is I'm an anti-imperialist also. I don't want, I don't want America to go abroad and, and try to stamp its, its imprint on foreign countries. I am worried about the national security state and the sort of like the way, and I, I, for instance, I hate when people make arguments for what we should do at home because we should be like a superpower or this is not how a superpower acts. And I'm like, well, the standing military is the bug in our system. The feature is like the politics, you know, like the feature is the Republic. And, and we, we have a national security state because we have to, 
because of the, the, the nature of the international system as it's evolved. And so I don't want, you know, I was like, I think you guys, I was in favor of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I was against the war in Iraq. Like, so I don't want us to, I just want us to do what we need to do to make sure that our people's self, our interests are reserved. Like I mentioned at the outset, dear listeners, we split this episode in two, just as we got into the domestic politics aspect of the debate. The second part is for paying members only. We hope you'll consider subscribing at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. Thanks again, and we hope to see you in part two.